So we're looking at John chapter 7. I know it's a little bit of an extended passage today, but I feel like we need to read it. And, and maybe some might ask, why would you read a passage that this long? This, this long? And uh, I really feel that what we all need is not to hear my opinions or my perspectives, but we need to hear from the living Word of God. And so we want to start each week reading the Word of God and, and hear what God has to say. So John chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning wherein he has never studied? So Jesus answered, My teaching is not mine, but him, his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he would know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, for where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? Again, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone up to him before and who was one of them, said to him, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So when I was maybe seven, eight years old, I used to, sometimes I would eat too much, and then I would have heartburn or indigestion. And the only way I knew how to describe this to my parents was I would say, sometimes my chest hurts. And so they took me to the pediatrician, and I just told them my chest hurts sometimes, and I didn't really correlate when it would hurt. I just said my chest hurts sometimes. And so they wanted to send me to the hospital to get some tests done to make sure everything was okay. And uh, so they take me to the hospital, and they hook me up to all these cords. I think it was an EKG. And then the technician says to my mom, uh, so is he on any medication for his irregular heartbeat? And my mom's like, wait, what? No, he's not on any medication. Oh, yeah, he has an irregular heartbeat. Okay. So then we go out from there, and we had about an hour, two-hour wait before we see the cardiologist. And I remember my parents and my mom going downstairs, and my mom was a nurse. She never really got nervous about things, you know, little things. But this was one of the first times in my life that I saw she was really worried about me. And so I asked questions that were really helpful, like, am I going to die? Am I going to have a heart attack? Is this the end for me? And she tried to reassure me the best she could, but I could tell she was nervous. So then we go back to the cardiologist an hour, two hours later, whatever it was. And I remember the meeting being very brief. We just go into his office. He's like, Everything looks good, no problems, uh, have a good day. My mom's like, but the technician said that he has an irregular heartbeat. Oh, that, that no, that's not, that's not irregular. That's normal for children. It would be an irregular, irregular for an adult, but not for children. So this flood of relief fell over me, and especially my mother. Uh, of course, she wasn't probably happy with that technician at that point. But it was relieving to know that what I was experiencing was normal. And sometimes it can be scary to feel like that we're not normal or that something that's happening to us is abnormal. Uh, people who are depressed often struggle with this. You know, you have this feeling that I, there's something wrong with me, that uh, I wish I could be like everybody else or I'm not normal. Uh, I know being a first-time parent, I, I've asked that question a number of times, you know, especially in the early days of, of having Paul. It's like, is it normal that he eats all the time? Is, he, is it normal that he doesn't sleep at all? Is it normal that he spits up? And I asked the pediatrician and my parents and looked it up on WebMD, all these questions, like, is what's happening normal? And it can be comforting to know that what is happening to us is normal. And when I say that, I'm not talking about kind of fitting in or, you know, just kind of 
fitting in, in terms of style or way that the culture goes, but there's a comfort in knowing that we're not alone, that there's other people who have experienced similar things that we've experienced. And, and that's why sometimes, you know, you get into a group like a community group or accountability group or something like that, and it's encouraging because the problems that you thought you were the only one who ever had those problems, you realize that the people around you have similar problems, that you're not alone. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this in terms of friendship, and he kind of talked about this as kind of the hallmark of friendship. He said, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the, of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. It can be comforting to know that other people share the same struggles that we share. Think about two scenarios. Uh, think about the first scenario. You, you go to Darien Lake, and you're going to ride the Superman roller coaster for the first time. And so you're waiting in line with this nervous anticipation, and then you get into the cart, and you get the seatbelt and get strapped in, and then you start up on the ride, and you slowly ascend that high, that high uh, peak there, and then you get to the top, and then you rush down at lightning speed, and you're terrified. You have your arms up. Maybe you're screaming, and you're terrified, but somehow you still have a smile on your face because it's fun, at least for some people. Think about another illustration. You go on an airplane. You get on the airplane. You fasten your seatbelt. The airplane starts up. You start slowly ascending up, up, up. You get to a certain point, and then you start nosediving, going down at lightning speed. You're probably screaming. You're probably terrified, and you're not having fun. You're probably, you're probably your whole life is passing uh, through your brain. You're probably thinking about the fact that you're most likely going to die. Now, those two uh, things that happen, there's physically, they're very similar things that happen. You go up, you go down. But it's normal to go up and to go down on a roller coaster. It's not normal to go and nosedive on an airplane. And so if that happens on an airplane, you're terrified. If it happens on a roller coaster, you're just having fun. And I think sometimes there's things in our life that maybe we need some assurance that the things that are happening to us are okay, that they're normal. And when we look at the scriptures, I think our sense of normal is in one sense defined by our Savior, Jesus Christ. We follow his pattern. Now, as we look at his life, there's certain aspects of his life and ministry, of course, that were uh, unique to him. He was the Son of God. But there's other aspects, the kind of general pattern of his life that I think applies to all of us. And his life kind of provides us with the pattern for what the Christian life is to look like. Matthew 10, 24 to 25, Jesus says this, A disciple is not above his, his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household. So we experience similar things that Jesus experienced. We follow the pattern of his life. And in this, in this passage, I'd like to look at a couple things that I believe are normal for the Christian life, but are not necessarily straightforward. 
And as we look at these things, I think my hope and my encouragement is that when we see these things and experience these things, when we're kind of in the valleys of life, we wouldn't be discouraged and wouldn't be tempted to give up because we know that it's all a part of the Christian journey. And also that we would be encouraged when we're on those high points in life. So I see three things that are kind of normal aspects of the Christian life in this passage. The first thing is it's normal to be lonely. So in this passage, it's just before the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Booths was a festival that commemorated God uh, bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and then how they were in the wilderness and lived in booths. It was also a harvest festival, so during this time, they celebrated the time when God uh, would bring in the harvest, when God would provide for them. And the text tells us that Jesus' brothers, and we're talking about brothers, we're talking about physical uh, flesh and blood brothers, most likely, uh, he, they tell him to go up to Jerusalem for this feast to make himself known. And it says in the text that his brothers do not even believe in him. And it seems like what they're doing is they're kind of just humoring him. They're just trying to just kind of give him some encouragement. It's almost like have you ever met someone who's maybe uh, just got out of high school or early 20s, and they're like, hey, uh, I'm starting this business, and I'm going to retire by the time I'm 35, and pretty soon I'm going to be a multimillionaire. And, and you're like, that, that's great. Good for you. I, I hope that works out for you. But you don't really believe it's going to happen. You know, maybe you give them some advice, but you don't expect they're going to become a multimillionaire next year. And I think that's what kind of is happening in this passage. The brothers don't believe in Jesus, but they're like, hey, if you want to become somebody, if you want to, you know, become a great rabbi, a great teacher, uh, you should probably go up to the feast, and maybe you should do a miracle, maybe do some teaching, show the people who you are, because, you know, if you want to be somebody, you got to make yourself known. Verse 4, they say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And it seems like what these brothers believe about Jesus as that he's most interested in gaining a following, that he's most interested in becoming popular. It's almost like the, the little brother who's always seeking attention. They're like, if you want to gain some attention, go up to the feast, make yourself known. But what does Jesus do? Jesus is not ready to manifest who he is. He's not simply about gaining a following. He's about doing the Father's will. And so what does it tell us that he does in verse 11? It says that he goes up to the feast, not publicly, but secretly. Now, just as an aside, as you're reading this passage, you might wonder, so, you know, it seems like Jesus says, all right, I'm not going up to the feast. And then a little while later, he goes up to the feast. Well, uh, in the Greek, this could also mean uh, Jesus say, is, and some of the early manuscripts kind of explicitly say this, I'm not yet going up to the feast. So Jesus wasn't trying to be deceptive here. He says, I'm not yet going up to the feast. So then, and then when he does go up, he goes in private rather than uh, publicly. And what's remarkable, what happens here is the brothers have no idea who he is. They don't understand him. And think about how lonely Jesus must have felt. That he has these brothers, his flesh and blood, people who grew up with him. People who lived in the same household as him, and they have no understanding of who he is. Jesus says they're part of the world system. He says the world won't persecute you because you fit into this world system. But they're going to persecute me. And his disciples don't understand who he is. 
And Jesus is walking on a lonely road. People who are closest to him, and not just the brothers, but other people, often are the people who understand him the least. In the movie The World's Greatest Dad, there's a character named Lance, played by Robin Williams, and the character once said this, I used to think the worst thing in life was to end up all alone. It's not. The worst thing in life is ending up with people who make you feel all alone. As we walk the road that God has for us, it often can be lonely. Sometimes the people who are closest to us, maybe even the people in our own family, don't understand who we are. Don't understand why we do the things that we do. Wait, why would you go to church? Don't you realize we're in the midst of a pandemic? Why would you want to be with other people? Why would you want to give to a person in need? I mean, you work hard for your money, right? You've earned your money. Why would you give to somebody else? They're probably going to squander what you give them. Why would you put your faith in this book that's 2,000 years old, that's full of all these myths and inaccuracies? Why would you put your faith in something like that? Do you really believe that it could change you? Why would you make a career change at this stage in your life? Do you really believe that you can make a difference? The loneliest experience that we could ever experience is being with people who are close to our hearts, but we realize we're no longer close to them. They don't understand us. They don't know what we're doing. Now they consider us to be different, perhaps even foolish. Don't be surprised when this happens. And the sad part is it sometimes even happens among God's people. When we get serious about following after God, when we really want to take God at his word and we want to walk forward in obedience, we will often face opposition and the road will often be lonely. I think about uh, the situation in Germany and Nazi Germany in World War II and uh, Hitler was trying to uh, gain support from churches as he's conquering these other countries and uh, started the persecution of the Jews and the remarkable part about it was many of these churches went along with him. They praised him as, as a great leader. Some even called him the German prophet. Some of them you know, celebrated his victories in battle. And then you have someone uh, like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and there were some others who basically you know, wrote to the church and talked to church leaders like, wake up. You cannot go along with Hitler's demands. You cannot serve Christ and Hitler at the same time. And yet, for the most part, he was ostracized. His friends, his colleagues, they just went along with the crowd. And here he is, a voice in the wilderness calling out for them to change. I can't imagine how lonely that must have been. Gandhi once said this, and of course Gandhi wasn't a Christian, but I think this quote is uh, appropriate. He says, it's easy to stand with the crowd. It takes courage to stand alone. It's normal to be lonely when we're doing what God has called us to do. It's normal to face opposition. It's normal for people not to understand us. The good news is we're never really alone. We can feel alone. We can feel lonely, but we know that our Savior, Jesus Christ, walks with us through his Holy Spirit each and every step of the way. We know that Jesus, as he goes up privately to the feast, had the presence of the Father with him. We also know that as believers, we have the family of God. We have people to do life with, people who ideally are on the same mission that we are. 
And in, uh, in the ideal world, uh, the, the, those people would encourage us and strengthen us as we walk on our journey. But it's normal to feel lonely as we follow after God. It's also normal to be misunderstood. See, Jesus does an incredibly good deed here. And uh, previously, we're not told which exactly that was. Maybe it was his healing of the paralytic. Uh, but he heals someone, and yet, what do they say? He's a lawbreaker. He healed on the Sabbath. He has the best of intentions, and yet he's labeled a lawbreaker, and they want to kill him. He speaks of a close relationship with God. He says, I am the Father and one, are one. He speaks of talking to the Father, of talking for the Father, and what do the people say? He's a blasphemer. He hangs out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. What do they say? They say he's a glutton. He's impure. And what is Jesus doing? He's demonstrating his love for those people. And eventually this mission of love would lead him to Golgotha as Jesus hung on the cross, considered to be cursed by God, considered to be an evildoer, despite his best intentions, despite the love that he sought to show. We see in this passage that the people even misunderstood his background and heritage. What's remarkable is they, they come from different perspectives. Early on in chapter 7, we see that the people say, well, the, the Messiah is supposed to come from somewhere. That we won't know where the Messiah comes from, and we know where Jesus comes from, so he can't be the Messiah. And then later we see that the people say, well, he's, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. He's not supposed to come from Galilee. They don't realize Jesus came from Bethlehem. He was from the line of David, and yet they don't investigate that. They just kind of, uh, they just overlook that fact. Doing the right thing, following the mission of God, may cause us to be understood. Sometimes our admonition or encouragement or correction, sometimes that can be seen as judgment. Sometimes our grace can be misunderstood as license. Sometimes our generosity could be misunderstood as pride or selfish ambition. Sometimes our love could be misunderstood as meddling. Sometimes our sacrifices could be misunderstood as foolishness. And this really makes sense when you think about it. I mean, it's hard for us to physically, psychologically deal with, but we all live under this world system, but Christians live in a different kingdom. And see, we see life from a different perspective, and so it shouldn't be surprising that people misunderstand what we do because we think, think of things from a different perspective. We think uh, with a perspective of God's glory, loving God and loving people. So it shouldn't be surprising. In 1983, the first Presbyterian church of Concord, California, made headlines because the pastor of that church, Leon Thompson, convinced his 500-member church to purchase a pornographic theater next to the church. The only catch about purchasing this was that there were several months left on this uh, theater's lease. So they purchased the building and they were basically the landlords to this pornographic theater for several months. They took a lot of backlash from that, but in, in the course of time they were able to close down that theater and turn that theater into a place, a community center, where Bible studies and recovery groups met. Greg... Uh, and I had to work on this name. It's a very difficult name. Asamaka Kupalos said this, 
in the actions of First Presbyterian Church, we see a reflection of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To battle sin head-on, he entered into our sinful world and risked rejection and being misunderstood in order to pay the price for our redemption. It's normal to be misunderstood, even when we have the best intentions, even when we're trying to do everything we can to love those around us, sometimes our love will be rejected. Sometimes people will misunderstand us. That's just a part of the Christian life. They misunderstood Jesus, and they'll misunderstand us. So it's normal to be lonely. It's normal to be misunderstood when we're following after God. The third thing is it's normal to be filled. On each day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the priest would go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would get a jar of water. And then they would go and pour that water out on the altar. And that display was meant to symbolize the water that came out of the rock. Remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness and God caused water to come out from a rock for them to drink. And so it symbolized, symbolized and memorialized that event. And so Jesus gets up on the last day of the feast and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And in essence, what he's saying is, I am that rock. I am that well of living water. If you're thirsty, come to me and find true life. And so that's kind of the first message. If, if you're spiritually thirsty, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can come to Christ and experience life in a relationship like no other. And if there's anybody here or listening online who has never entered into a relationship with Christ, I'd love to talk to you more about that, Patrick, or a number of people here would love to talk to you more about that. But Jesus goes much further than that. It's not just about salvation. He goes further in verse 38, and he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus speaks not just about drinking the living water, although that's a part of it, but also being filled with the living water, so much so that that water overflows out of our hearts. So for those of us who are believers, it's normal to be filled by God's Spirit and for God's love to pour out of our hearts. So I have this cup here of water. And if this cup bounces into something... What happens? Water spills out. Now, why, why does water spill out? Well, you say, well, because you bumped into something. Well, that's true. But why did water pour out versus apple juice or grape juice or pop? Because it's filled with water. And the same thing is true for those of us who are believers in Christ. When we interact with those around us, what comes out is the living water. What comes out is blessing if we're filled with God's Holy Spirit. That's just the natural outflowing of what God has done in our hearts. And so it's normal for the Christian to be filled with God's Spirit and for blessing to pour out of our hearts. And this is not our own efforts. This is not something that's done in our own strength. It's simply the byproduct of God's presence, God's Holy Spirit living inside of us. The late Dr. A.W. Tozer, author and pastor, one said this, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. A number of years ago, the Associated Press 
uh, did this study uh, on uh, how much energy and how much effort it took to grow 100 bushels of corn on one acre of land in Iowa. They didn't even factor in the, the farmer's labor and the hours that the farmer uh, took to cultivate the land. But here's what it re would require. Four million pounds of water, 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of yellow sulfur, and other elements too numerous to list. In addition to these things, which no one can produce, required rain and sunshine at just the right times for the corn to grow. It was estimated only 5% of the produce of a, of a farm can be attributed to the efforts of man. And the same thing is true for spiritual fruit. It's not about our efforts. It's about allowing God's spirit to flow through us and allowing him uh, through us to bless those around us. And God wants to fill us with his spirit. God wants us to be satisfied in him, and he wants us to be a blessing to those around us. Now you might say to yourself, well, sometimes that's easy to see. You know, you might have uh, someone who is, you know, social worker, someone who serves the poor or the great evangelist who sees, you know, hundreds of people come to the Lord. And, and you can see God's spirit and God's blessing flowing out of them. But what about for the average person? What about for the stay-at-home mom? What about for the teacher? What about for the factory worker, the empty nester? What does it look like for God's spirit for blessing to flow out of our hearts. Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, several years ago, there was a front page article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a bus driver by the name of Linda Wilson Allen. Now, you think about a bus driver, and, you know, it's kind of a simple job. And you think, what kind of influence could you have as a bus driver? It's kind of a thankless job, too. I mean, you have, you know, rude customers. Uh, sometimes they make messes you have to clean up. There's a lot of things you have to deal with. And yet she saw her uh, job not just as a job but as a ministry. So what did she do? She learned the people's names who came on her bus. Sometimes she would wait for them if they were late, and, if, and, and then she would make up the time later. So one lady, elderly lady, who was struggling with... Uh, bags to, that she was carrying on the bus. And Alan got off the bus and went and helped her bring the bags back on the bus. Another story of a person who was new to town, and she invited this person over for Thanksgiving dinner. Didn't have any other family to go to. It's alleged that after each shift or after each fair, she would say, that's all. I love you. Take care. She made an impact on the people that rode her bus. People would go out of the way to ride her bus. They would pass by other buses that maybe were closer to ride on her bus. She became close friends with many of the people that she drove. She'd had people who would bring her little potted plants. They learned that she liked scarves, so they'd bring her scarves. They would uh, let her use their vacation home. She said it all kind of started with her time with the Lord, each morning she would get up at 2.30 in the morning and spend a half hour talking to God. She said she had a lot of things to talk about with Jesus. John Ortberg had her uh, to his church uh, a few years ago, and Ortberg asked her whether she prays when she's driving at work. 
And she replied that her work is ministering to God's people. She said, God will show you things. He will show you the senior who is having a hard time getting up on that couch and how to take it in, in there real gentle and set it down right in front of her. He'll teach you the one who's in the back who might not have all of their fare, and he'll say, maybe they just pay what they can. He'll teach you these things. He just shows you. So God's spirit, God's blessing is to flow out of us as believers, and it doesn't matter what our job may be. It doesn't mean we have to quit what we're doing and go into ministry or go into uh, social work. Wherever we're planted, God can use us to be a blessing to those around us. So three things we learned in this passage in conclusion. It's normal to be lonely as we're following after God. It's normal to be misunderstood. And when we experience these things, we can take comfort knowing that it happened to Jesus. And it's only fair that it happens to us. We can also take comfort in knowing that Jesus understands us. That Jesus knows us. That Jesus walks with us through his Holy Spirit each and every step of the way. And that we have a family of people who are following after God who we can take comfort in. And it's also normal to be filled. We should drink of the living water, but that water also should flow out of us to those around us. And if it's not, why not? Why isn't that blessing flowing out of us? There's a couple of possible options. Number one, maybe we're not believers. God's blessing is not going to flow out of us if God's Holy Spirit is not inside of us. So maybe we need to ask ourselves, am I really a believer? Have I committed myself to Christ? Also, maybe, maybe we have some sin in our life. And maybe some sin in our life is kind of blocking God's Spirit from moving. Maybe some disobedience is preventing God from working. Or maybe we're trying to do things in our own strength rather than God, allowing God's Spirit to move inside of us. For the believer in Christ, it's normal to be filled and it's normal for God's spirit to flow out of us. And so we need to make changes to allow that to happen uh, if that may, may be needed. Richard Halverson, a former pastor at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, and a former Senate chaplain, used to give this benediction that he'd give almost after almost every message or service that he did. And this benediction speaks of what the Holy Spirit wants to do through us. I'd like to close with this benediction. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of His Spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in this grace in His grace, His love, His power. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You set the pattern for us. We thank You that You walked a lonely road, that You were misunderstood, that You were mistreated, so that we could experience the living water, so that we could taste of Your love and that we could be a blessing to those around us. Lord, for those who are going through times of loneliness, maybe we're following after God, and maybe our family just has rejected us. Maybe our friends don't understand us. 
Lord, help us to take comfort in knowing that you're with us. Help us to take comfort in knowing that you experience the same things. And Lord, use us through your Holy Spirit to be a blessing to those around us. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you or anyone listening online, I pray that today would be the day they put their faith and trust in you, that they would take that step. For those of us who are, who are believers, Lord, if, if your blessing and your spirit isn't flowing out of us, Lord, I pray that we would make the changes that we need to make so that that would happen, relying on your spirit. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for all that you do for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.